Welcome to Three Things from Ad Absurdum. I'm Ian McLeod. Thing one, Linica Gate. I need to be careful here to avoid hypocrisy. I'm going to give this issue attention while at the same time arguing that Gary Lineker should be ignored on these issues. If you haven't followed the story, Gary Lineker, the former footballing great and now football pundit, made some comments on the British Home Secretary, Suella Braverman's efforts to limit illegal migration. This caused a massive uproar. The left seems to have sided unanimously with Lineker, and far more sensible people have taken a more nuanced approach. Now, Braverman has, as far as I can tell, simply made efforts to limit illegal migration. She has said nothing about breaking laws that govern genuine asylum seekers. Lineker has made no such clear distinction. He sent a tweet that made a number of errors. Let's go through them. First, he says there is no huge influx. Well, he doesn't give us numbers, and he provides a completely meaningless benchmark. Huge, small, medium-sized, big-ish, all irrelevant. To what extent are legitimate asylum seekers being treated as such, and to what extent are illegal migrants being treated as such? There is certainly evidence of people abusing the system. Young men who are clearly economic migrants coming over from countries that are perfectly safe. That needs to be limited, obviously. He goes on to say, we take far fewer refugees than other major European countries. He makes the same errors here. First, he provides no evidence. And this is, this is his strategy. He's not... He doesn't demonstrate himself to be a serious man who, who does the work, who does the research, gathers the data, and presents it. He also uses a completely arbitrary benchmark. So what? If it's fewer or more than other European countries, the relevant question remains, are they being treated appropriately, depending on whether they are genuine refugees or just young men who are entering illegally to take economic advantage. Lineker then goes on to further damage his credibility. He calls this an immeasurably cruel policy. As usual, he doesn't outline the actual policy or state which parts of it are immeasurably cruel. But he's really done himself a disservice here by describing this as immeasurably cruel. That's a, that's a very harsh description. And he's lowered the bar to an extent that when he uses that term, it is meaningless. How would he describe torture? He's left himself no room. A sensible policy that limits the number of people who are jumping on dinghies, risking life and limb to enter the UK. And hardly seems immeasurably cruel. Then the 
really controversial part. He says that the language being used is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 1930s. I think as a general rule, most of us have learned don't compare things to Germany in the 1930s or 1940s. It's just, it doesn't end well. It may be appropriate at some stage, but I don't think we've seen events worthy of that comp comparison. Well, certainly we very rarely do. He also simply hasn't done the work. He hasn't, for example, written a, a piece, a well-researched and nuanced piece where we could engage on this. There, there are some pretty sensible arguments out there that suggest, of course, Linux is not referring quite to the Holocaust and there may be some comments that are inappropriately similar to those used in Germany in the 30s, but the problem is Lineker hasn't outlined those. To me, this all amounts to a strong case that we should simply ignore Gary Lineker as a political and social commentator. The complication here is that he's also a highly paid contractor to the BBC, the, the UK's state broadcaster. Now, my general stance on that is that the BBC should not exist. Uh, I go to my Austrian economics, Austrian school economics roots and argue that a government should never stomp into your home and demand £159 a year to produce content that you may or may not want. What I found interesting was doing some research on this. The British, the BBC website tells us that for people who own black and white television sets, the license fee is £53.50 per year. Now, this is a powerful statement on governments. Only a government would go into the home of a person whose life has, has taken the sorts of turns it would have to take to, in the year 2023, own a black and white television set and demand... £53.50 for that privilege. I like to offer solutions as well. This one comes in the form of a, a meme suggesting in a world of Gary Lineker's, rather be a Matt Letizier. Letizier, of course, also a former great footballer. He chooses now to use his time making some far more sensible and, and productive arguments uh, the ones I enjoy most are those arguing against things like lockdowns and vaccine mandates. Thing two, of course, SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, of course, has collapsed. The big question, to what extent will government step in and bail it out? Bail out employees, shareholders, investors, stakeholders of various types. I, of course, argue bailouts beget bailouts, and we have to let the chips fall where they may. According to Yahoo Finance, shareholders in these banks will not be protected. Senior management has been removed. Good. Those are basics. However, they go on to say the Fed, has, the Fed will make available additional funding to eligible depository institutions. Now, let's be clear on what a bailout is. It's taking money 
from people who did not take risks and who did not stand to benefit from those risks and giving it to those people who did take those risks, did stand to benefit from them, but ended up losing out. Joe Biden has said that no losses will be borne by taxpayers. That's, of course, fantastic evidence that losses will be borne by taxpayers. A number of commentators are in agreement. Andrew Ross Sorkin was a major commentator and author in the aftermath of the 2008 crash. He says, it is a bailout, not like 2008, but a bailout nonetheless. Vivek Ramanswamy, a man who's running for president in the US and becoming more of a hero of mine day by day, says, it is a bailout, pure and simple. Raman Swami goes on to say, of course, correctly, that it's not directly and only a bailout of Silicon Valley Bank, but Silicon Valley. Economics is never about one entity. It's, it's a vast interconnected matrix. He also highlights the role that workery plays in all of this. There's strong evidence that SVB has been bathed in ESG, sustainable development goals, etc. Uh, essentially wasting time that shareholders have been paying them to spend building the business on fighting climate change, racial justice, LGBTQ issues, all important issues, but ones that directors, executives, business people obsess over unjustifiably. Raman Swami also suggests something that we should simply keep an eye out for. There may be wrongdoing. That executives may have contributed to a run on the bank by their statements. That's something to, to keep an eye on. And thing number three, here we come to South Africa. This last weekend, a rapper, I had never heard of him before, Costa Titch, collapsed and died on stage. I saw this piece on the conversation written by a humanities researcher at my alma mater, the University of Cape Town. Two things struck me as problematic. First, in the headline, the rising South African, the rising white South African rap star. Why, why white? His race just doesn't seem relevant. This seems like part of a an obsession with race, hyper-racialization of everything. And it gets worse in his, I think it's the concluding para paragraph, he says, Costa Titch had all the opportunities to remain sequestrated within the comforts provided by white power and privilege. Now, I don't know what this author thinks life is like for a 28-year-old white South African born in Nelspreet. Nelspreet is a small to medium-sized South African town in a, in a rather ag agricultural area. I'm not sure how luxurious life there is. Certainly there are some very wealthy people who live rather luxurious lives. My point is we just don't know what Costa's life was like. 
he's treating him as simply a piece of a group, a white South African, and that's all he is. That's something I think we need to keep combating. We actually know very little about Costa's background. The term white power is also problematic. He offers no nuance on this, firstly. Yes, we can certainly point to power disparities. White South Africans, on average, certainly have more family wealth, for example, than black South Africans. But we're also in a context where essentially every public institution is now controlled by largely by black people. Corporate South Africans are falling over themselves to hire non-whites. And the only laws that discriminate based on race are ones that limit economic opportunities for South Africans, the black economic, black economic uh, empowerment rules. These limit the degree to which South Africans, white South Africans can apply for jobs, apply for tenders. Now we can have those debates. My point here is simply that this author has offered no nuance. He doesn't know the individual facts about this rapper. He has simply treated him as a piece cut from a larger group. And the term white power, I think, has a very particular meaning that does not apply here. Those were three things from Ad Absurdum. I'm Ian McLeod. See you next time.